Modern World History, Patterns of Interaction, Chapter 12, Section 3, U.S. Economic Imperialism, Setting the Stage. Latin America's long struggle to gain independence from colonial domination between the late 18th and mid-19th centuries left the new nations in shambles. Farm fields had been neglected and were overrun with weeds. Buildings in many cities bore the scars of battle. Some cities had been left in ruins. The new nations of Latin America faced a struggle for economic and political recovery that was every bit as difficult as their struggle for independence had been. Latin America after independence. Political independence meant little for most citizens of the new Latin American nations. The majority remained poor laborers caught up in a cycle of poverty. Colonial legacy. Both before and after independence, most Latin Americans worked for large landowners. Their employers paid their workers with vouchers that could be used only at their own supply stores. Since wages were low and prices were high, workers went into debt. Their debt accumulated and passed from one generation to the next. In this system known as peonage, free workers were little better than slaves. Landowners, on the other hand, only got wealthier after independence. Many new Latin American governments took over the lands owned by native peoples and by the Catholic Church. Then they put those lands up for sale. Wealthy landowners were the only people who could afford to buy them, and they snapped them up. But as one Argentinian newspaper reported, quote, their greed for land does not equal their ability to use it intelligently, end quote. The unequal distribution of land and the landowner's inability to use it effectively combined to pre uh, present, prevent social and economic development in Latin America. Political instability. Political instability was another widespread problem in 19th century Latin America. Many Latin American army leaders had gained fame and power during their long struggle for independence. They often continued to assert their power. They controlled the new nations as military dictators or claudios. They were able to hold on to power because they were backed by the military. By the mid-1800s, nearly all the countries of Latin America were ruled by claudios. One typical claudio was Juan Vicente Gomez. He was a ruthless man who ruled Venezuela for nearly 30 years after seizing power in 1908. Quote, all Venezuela is my cattle ranch, end quote, he once boasted. There were some exceptions, however. Reform-minded presidents, such as Argentina's Domingo Sarmiento, made strong commitments to improving education. During Sarmiento's presidency, between 1868 and 1874, the number of students in Argentina doubled. But such reformers usually did not stay in office long. More often than not, the Claudio, supported by the army, seized control of the government. The Claudios faced little opposition. The wealthy landowners usually supported them uh, because they opposed giving power to the lower classes. In addition, Latin Americans had gained little experience with democracy under European colonial rule. So, the dictatorship of a Claudio did not seem unusual to them. But even when Claudios were not in power, most Latin Americans still lacked a voice in the government. Voting rights, and with them political power, were restricted to the relatively few members of the upper and middle classes who owned property or could read. Economies grow under foreign influence. When colonial rule ended in Latin America in the early 1800s, the new nations were no longer restricted to trading with colonial powers. Britain, and later the United States, became Latin America's main trading partners. Old products and new markets. Latin America's economies continued to depend on exports, no matter whom they were trading with. 
As during the colonial era, each country concentrated on one or two products. With advances in technology, however, Latin America's exports grew. The development of the steamship and the building of railroads in the 19th century, for example, greatly increased Latin American trade. Towards the end of the century, the invention of refrigeration helped increase Latin America's exports. The sale of beef, fruits and vegetables, and other perishable goods soared. But foreign nations benefited far more from the increased trade than Latin America did. In exchange for their exports, Latin Americans imported European and North American manufactured goods. As a result, they had little reason to develop their own manufacturing industries. And as long as Latin America remained unindustrialized, it could not play a leading role on the world economic stage. Outside investment and interference. Furthermore, Latin American countries used little of their export income to build roads, schools, or hospitals, nor did they fund programs that would help them become self-sufficient. Instead, they often borrowed money at high interest rates to develop fac uh, facilities for their export industries. Countries such as Britain, France, the United States, and Germany were willing lenders. The Latin American countries were often unable to pay back their loans, however. In response, foreign lenders sometimes threatened to collect the debt by force. At other times, they threatened to take over the facilities they had funded. In this way, foreign companies gained control of many Latin American industries. This began a new age of economic colonialism in Latin America. A Latin American Empire Long before the United States had any economic interest in Latin American countries, it realized that it had strong links with its southern neighbors. Leaders of the United States were well aware that their country's security depended on the security of Latin America. The Monroe Doctrine Most Latin American colonies had gained their independence by the early 1800s, but their position was not secure. Many Latin Americans feared that European countries would try to reconquer the new republics. The United States, a young nation itself, feared this too. So, in 1823, President James Monroe issued what came to be called the Monroe Doctrine. This document stated that, quote, the American continents are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any European powers, end quote. Until 1898, though, the United States did little to enforce the Monroe Doctrine. Cuba provided a real testing ground. Cuba declares independence. The Caribbean island of Cuba was one of Spain's last colonies in the Americas. In 1868, Cuba declared its independence and fought a 10-year war against Spain. In 1878, with the island in ruins, the Cubans gave up the fight. But some Cubans continued to seek independence from Spain. In 1895, José Martí, a writer who had been exiled from Cuba by the Spanish, returned to launch his second war for Cuban independence. Martí was killed early in the fighting but the Cubans battled on. By the mid-1890s, the United States had developed substantial business holdings in Cuba. Therefore, it had an economic state in the fate of the country. In addition, the Spanish had forced many Cuban civilians into concentration camps. Americans objected to the Spanish brutality. In 1898, the United States joined the Cubans' War for Independence. This conflict, which became known as the Spanish-American War, lasted about four months. U.S. forces launched their first attack not on Cuba, but on the Philippine Islands, a Spanish colony thousands of miles away in the Pacific. Unprepared for a war on two fronts, the Spanish military quickly collapsed. In 1901, Cuba became an independent nation, 
at least in name. However, the United States installed a military government and continued to exert control over Cuban affairs. This caused tremendous resentment amongst many Cubans, who had assumed that the United States' aim in interfering was to help Cuba become truly independent. The split that developed between the United States and Cuba at this time continues to keep these close neighbors miles apart more than a century later. After its defeat in the Spanish-American War, Spain turned over the last of its colonies. Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines became U.S. territories. Having become the dominant imperial power in Latin America, the United States next set its sights on Panama. Connecting the Oceans Latin Americans were beginning to regard the United States as the political and economic colossus of the North. The United States was a colossus in geographic terms, too. By the 1870s, the Transcontinental Railroad connected its east and west coasts. But land travel still was time-consuming and difficult. And sea travel between the coasts involved a trip of about 13,000 miles around the tip of South America. If a canal could be dug across the narrow section of Central America, however, the coast-to-coast journey would be cut in half. The United States had been thinking about such a project since the early 19th century. In the 1880s, a French company tried, but failed, to build a canal across Panama. Despite this failure, Americans remained enthusiastic about the canal. And no one was more enthusiastic than President Theodore Roosevelt, who led the nation from 1901 to 1909. In 1903, Panama was a province of Colombia. Roosevelt offered that country $10 million plus a yearly payment for the right to build a canal. When the Colombian government demanded more money, the United States responded by encouraging a revolution in Panama. The Panamanians had been trying to break away from Colombia for almost a century. In 1903, with the help of the United States Navy, they won their country's independence. In gratitude, Panama gave the United States a 10-mile-wide zone in which to build a canal. For the next decade, American engineers contended with floods and withering heat to build the massive waterway. However, their greatest challenge was a disease-carrying insect that infested the area. The United States began a campaign to destroy the mosquitoes that carried yellow fever and malaria, and the rats that carried bubonic plague. The effort to control these diseases was eventually successful. Even so, thousands of workers died during construction of the canal. The Panama Canal finally opened in 1914. Ships from around the world soon began to use it. Latin America had become a crossroads of world trade, and the United States controlled the toll gate. The Roosevelt Colliery The building of the Panama Canal was only one way that the United States expanded its influence in Latin America in the early 20th century. His presence in Cuba and its large investments in many Central and South American countries strengthened its foothold. To protect those economic interests, in 1904, President Roosevelt issued a colliery, or extension to the Monroe Doctrine. The Roosevelt Colliery gave the United States the right to be, quote, an international police power, end quote, in the Western Hemisphere. The United States used the Roosevelt Colliery many times in the following years to justify U.S. intervention in Latin America. U.S. troops occupied some countries for decades. Many Latin Americans protested this intervention, but they were powerless to stop their giant neighbor to the north. The U.S. government simply turned a deaf ear to their protests. It could not ignore the rumblings of revolution just over its border with Mexico, however. You will learn about this revolution in Section 4.